turn our attention to <clears throat> the, the reading and then the proclamation of God's word. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. <clears throat> if you're using a pew Bible from one of the seats in front of you, it's on page 925. Uh, and as you turn there, I just want to give a brief preface, uh, both for this sermon and for all other sermons that I give, that you should be aware that I never live up to my own preaching. The, the standard of God's word is so high in what he calls us to as disciples of Christ uh, that I'm not living up to that. Even I can preach better than I can live, and I'm aware of that, and I'm acknowledging that to you uh, so you don't have any false preconceptions of me. <clears throat> But nevertheless, it's my duty to call you to what God calls you to as disciples and followers of Christ. Uh, even as we fall short of that and are aware of our need for forgiveness and, and to repent of our failures and look to Christ and find our sufficiency in him, uh, he nevertheless calls us to that and to seek after him. So <clears throat> with that in mind, let's look to Colossians chapter 3, <clears throat> just verses 1 to 4. <clears throat> This is God's holy and inspired word. If then you have been raised with Christ, <clears throat> seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Amen. Father, we thank you for these weighty and glorious truths that as followers of Christ, we have died, and yet we've also been raised with Christ in newness of life. And as such, you call us to live as new creations in him, so help us to do that. Apply your word to our hearts. Convict us, encourage us, shape us, and transform us more and more into the likeness of Christ that we might better honor you because of the truth we see and hear today in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're familiar with the New Testament, and particularly the letters of Paul, then you know that the first half of his letters usually concern doctrinal truths, and the second half of his letters are filled with how we are to live in light of those truths. Uh, we could say the first half is indicative statements about what is true, and the second half is imperative commands. The first half is orthodoxy, the second half is orthopraxy. Of course, that doesn't mean that there are no commands in the first half and that there's no uh, indicative statements in the second half, but there is an obvious and distinct emphasis that characterizes the letter. And this morning, we arrive at the hinge between these two sections in the letter to the Colossians. And you can just gaze back in your Bible at some of the previous content in chapters 1 and 2 and see some of the doctrine that has been covered thus far. 
Paul talks about who Christ is. In Colossians 1, 14 or 15, he's the image of the invisible God. He is the one through whom and for whom all things are made. And not only that, but he is the head of the church and the firstborn from the dead. So he is Lord of all creation. He is Lord of all redemption. Why? So that in all things he might be preeminent. And then he talks about what Christ has accomplished. So the person of work and then the person of Christ and then the work of Christ. In chapter two, how God has wondrously saved us while we were hostile towards him and alienated from him, doing evil deeds. He reconciled us to himself. How? Through the person and work of Christ. Uh, We saw a couple weeks ago how we do not need to seek any higher or greater spiritual experience in anything other than Christ himself because the fullness of God dwells in Christ and we are filled in him. And now we've been made alive in him. We've been raised with him. We've been forgiven in him and we are triumphant with him. And this he accomplished Paul explains in chapter 2, by taking all of our sins to himself, bearing them to the cross, forever satisfying the legal demands that stood against us. And because of that, because of these doctrinal truths, these realities, you have been made new. You've been given new life. You have a new relationship to God, new status before God. Everything is new for the Christian. And now the question is, How are we to live in light of those truths? That's what chapter 3 is about. There are over 20 imperative statements, commands in chapter 3 alone. But really, most of those imperatives have about five or six commands attached to them. So there's really like 40 commands in just chapter 3 alone. Well, what I mean here is just to give an example, chapter 3, 12 and 13 Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another in love. And if anyone has a complaint against one another, forgiving one each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So grammatically speaking, there's only one imperative, and that's put on. But then Paul goes to explain that you are to put on all of these things. And there are eight different things that we are to put on as followers of Christ who've been made new in him and given new life in him. So functionally, it's really like eight separate commands that are all being governed by this one imperative. And it's just daunting to think about. There are over 40 different things that the Lord requires of you as a follower of Christ in chapter 3 alone. That's less than half a page in this Bible. And there are 40 things that are mentioned. This is what you are to do and how you are to live as a follower of Christ. And so this is where we are at in the book of Colossians. It's this hinge point where he transitions from orthodoxy, what is true, who Christ is, and what it what who the Christian is, to orthopraxy, how we are to live in light of that and practice our faith. And so the goal this morning is simply to understand what is the relationship between those two things, doctrinal truths and practical living. How do those things relate to one another in the Christian life? Uh, And I've already pointed out there's a lot of different words and language that I could use to frame the question, I'm going to express it this way. 
Question. What is the relationship between who we are and how we live? Answer. How we live flows out of who we are. So if you haven't been listening, just listen up. I'll say it one more time. This is the main point. How we live flows out of who we are. And it's very easy to see this in the text itself. And we see it two times. Paul repeats it. So verse 1, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ. That's who we are, our, our identity as redeemed sinners given new life in Christ. If that is true of you, then what should you do? Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And now Paul expresses the same exact thought, but in reverse order in verse 2. What should you do? Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Why? Because of who you are. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And if you can just get this fundamental truth about Christianity, you will be spared from a host of false teaching. You will be guarded against lots of of air. And so let's just start with who we are, and then we'll finish with what we are to do in light of that. So who we are, this is, how, this is our identity. Notice he begins with the condition. If then you have been raised with Christ. So everything that's going to follow in the rest of chapter 3, all the 40 commands that I mentioned are conditioned upon the fact the assumption that you have, in fact, been raised with Christ. And so a good place to start is simply asking ourselves, have I been raised with Christ? Have the realities that Paul described in chapters 2, 9 to 15 happened in my life? Have I been spiritually buried with him in baptism? Have I been spiritually raised with him in newness of life through faith? Have I been made alive with him? Have I been forgiven of all my trespasses? In other words, am I actually a Christian? Because if you are not a Christian, then there is no point in trying to obey all the commandments that a Christian is called to obey. All the makeup in the world will not make a dead body alive, no matter how nice it looks. And so also, all the Christian disciplines in the world might make a very good moral person, but they will not make someone alive in Christ with newness of life. You know, I could go to Mexico. I could learn the language. I could learn the customs. I could change the way I dress. I could change my facial hair and have a very nice mustache. I could, I could learn all about the history and politics. Uh, I could do all sorts of things. I could play their sports. I could enjoy their music. I could master the culture in every single way. But no matter how much I apparently fit in, you know, I would still be an American. And if I opened up my passport, it would still say, U.S. citizen. And down through the history of the church, there are both individuals and there are whole denominations of people that try to behave and live like citizens of heaven while they're still, in fact, citizens of the world. They skip 
the gospel truths, gospel realities of Colossians 1 and 2 and go directly to the practice of Colossians 3 and assume that it all amounts to the same thing. But it doesn't. And understand, this can happen in very legalistic churches and it can happen in very liberal churches, uh, theologically liberal, that are on very different sides of the spectrum. So, In a legalistic church, all the emphasis is put on external conformity to the commands, making sure you dress like a Christian, you talk like a Christian, you look like a Christian, you avoid non-Christian people, you avoid non-Christian places, and you have the facade of a very religious, moral person, as if God's great goal is to make moral people who do moral things. But it also happens just the same in very liberal churches where you will hear things like, well, doctrine and theology doesn't really matter. What really matters is learning to live and love like Jesus. And that is very common sentiment today. But it might surprise you to know that it was even more common 100 years ago. 100 years ago, virtually all the mainline denominations succumbed to theological liberalism, which explicitly denied the deity of Christ. It denied the authority and inspiration of Scripture. It denied substitutionary atonement that Christ made a satisfaction for our sin to deliver us from the wrath of God, as well as a host of other doctrines. And they were all thrown out of the window. Why? Because they argued doctrine doesn't matter And Christianity is really just trying to love like Jesus loved, to embrace the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, to be kind and courteous. And that is really what Christianity is about. And so you can just skip over Colossians 1 and 2. You don't need to worry yourself about sin and regeneration and the forgiveness of your trespasses and substitutionary atonement. It's all peripheral, secondary. It's not at the heart. But that... Both of those examples is a fundamental failure to realize what Christianity actually is according to the Bible and what makes someone a Christian. One is not a Christian because they go to church, they read their Bible, dress a certain way, homeschool their kids, and don't get drunk on the weekends. Nor is someone a Christian because they embrace the golden rule and try to Love other people and try to do the right thing and see Jesus as the ultimate example of love. Uh, I'm not saying any of those things are bad. I'm just saying it's not what makes someone a Christian. What, according to Scripture, is the essential mark of the Christian? Paul clearly explains in Colossians 2 and then now in 3, it is the one who has been made alive in Christ. It is the person who was once dead in their sins and transgressions. They're alienated from God. They're hostile towards him. And then they heard the good news that Jesus Christ came as the perfect sinless Savior who died in their stead. And they believed on him. They trusted that he was able to save them from their sin, that he really did bear their judgment, bear the punishment and the wrath that God had towards them for their sin, and that he was risen from the dead, and that it was accounted to them as righteousness, that they were justified, made right with God by faith, and they were made alive through, in the midst of that, through the working of the Spirit, imparting faith, imparting new sight. And Paul explains that they were dead 
And then they were made alive by the Spirit. They were regenerated. They were given new life. This is the one who is a Christian. There is no person who is regenerated and dwelt by the Spirit who is not a Christian. And there is no Christian who is not regenerated and indwelt by the Spirit. It is an objective reality that it is either true or not true for every person. There is no sort of or kind of Christian because there is no sort of kind of regenerate indwelt by the Spirit person. And the significant part is that's who this command is. That's who the rest of chapter 3 is for. It's for those who have been raised with Christ. If then you have been raised with Christ. And we see the same truth repeated in verses 2 and 3. Paul says, Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. See how, again, the command to set your minds on the things above is grounded in the truth of who you are, that you have died, and that your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's grounded in the fact that there has been a fundamental shift in your identity, that you're not the person that you once were, that you're a new person, and because you're a new person, there is a certain way to live on account of that. The old me and the old you died when you came to faith in Christ, and now there is a new you with new life. You have a new relationship to God. You have a new status with God, and you're no longer a citizen of this world. You're a citizen of heaven. That's where your home is. That's where your life is, and it's on the basis of that fundamental truth. It's a theological, doctrinal truth in your identity that the command comes to us. And now just briefly to return to this question, because it's important Paul raises it, if you have been raised. So have I been raised with Christ in newness of life? Well, what are some of the evidences of new life in Christ? Well, I would ask, do you have new desires that you didn't have before? Like, do you delight Do you want to obey God? Do you desire that God would be honored and glorified in your life? Do you have an appetite for the truth of God's word, whether it's in the the preaching of God's word and sermons or directly reading from scripture itself? Do you enjoy being with other Christians, worshiping together, meditating upon the truth of scripture together, praying with one another and for one another together. And even as these new desires are being stirred and awakened in your heart, there's old desires that begin to die. The things that you once thoughtlessly did now bring conviction and a sense of guilt. The sin that was once sweet to you and purely pleasurable now becomes bitter. And you can't give yourself to it in the same way because the Spirit of God abides in you and you cannot give yourself over to sin. You know that you are sinning against your Savior and it is bitter to you. And these are just a few things that happen in the life 
of those who have new life in Christ that have been given and dwelt by the Spirit. But I would also add, perhaps you're a young person. Uh, Perhaps you've grown up your whole life in a healthy Christian home. And perhaps there's never even a time when you can remember that you didn't have a genuine and sincere affirmation of the God, a sincere belief in the God of the Bible, and at least a surface understanding of the gospel, of that who Jesus is as a son of God and that he came to die for your sins. If that's you, don't worry yourself sick because you don't know the exact moment that you were saved or because there was never this very obvious, dramatic transformation overnight in your life. I would ask you, though, as you compare your life and your wants and your hopes, your desires to others, is there a difference between your heart and what you value and long for and the life of others who are not following Christ? And I would ask some of the kids, when Your friends complain about their parents and the things that they do. Do you join in and offer your complaints and all the ways in which you feel slighted by your parents? Or do you take God's commands serious to honor your father and mother? I would ask, do you just endure going to church? Or do you really want to learn as much as you can, even if there are things that you don't understand and some of it goes over your head? Do you want to learn about who God is and who Christ is, uh, even if you struggle to pay attention sometimes? Even if it is a small and imperfect faith, as all of our faith is, the question is, is it real? Is it genuine? Is our understanding of the gospel coupled with a imperfect but real love for Christ as our Savior, a desire to know him better, to obey him more fully, to worship him more truly. And and there's no doubt in my mind that God can work real heavenly desires into the heart and mind of an 11-year-old. You can pray just as much a child, as much as Jeremy can, God I want to honor you with my life. Help me do that. And often, I would say in young people, the difference is that one child has been taught to say something and the other one genuinely means it. And perhaps not as much as they should, perhaps not as much as they could, which again is true for all of us, but it really does mean something to them and they mean it when they say it. And so I would say, saints, whether you're a big saint or a little saint, we want to ask ourselves, search our hearts, have I been raised with Christ? And if that is true of you, if you have been raised with Christ, then this is what you are to do. Set your mind on things above. And again, this comes to us in two different exhortations. Both of them are pushing us in the same direction. We see in verse 1, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And then in verse 2, set your minds on the things that are above and not on the things that are, that, on, the things that are on earth. And so Christianity is more than obeying commands. It is more than a certain kind of lifestyle. 
But understand, it's not less than those things. The lifestyle is downstream from the realities of God giving us new life, but they are still real uh, parts of the Christian life. And so if you are a Christian, if you have been raised with Christ, there are lots of commands for you. There is a very particular lifestyle that God calls you to and would have you to live as a follower of Christ. There is absolutely no part of your life which remains untouched by the lordship of Jesus. Your relationships come under the lordship of Christ. Your money comes under the lordship of Christ. Your free time comes under the lordship of Christ. Your emotions, your sexuality, all of it comes under the lordship of Jesus Christ. What you eat, what you drink, what you think about, what you watch, what you listen to, what you wear, to be a follower of Jesus is have everything you have, everything you are, submitted to Christ as Lord. And not only are there explicit commands in relation to each and every one of the things that I just mentioned in Scripture, but it's also evident from just our general relationship to Christ. How much autonomy and how much independence and freedom does a slave have? Well, none. They do, everything they do is subject to the will of the master. And this is one of the ways that Scripture speaks about our relationship to Christ. Romans 6.19-21 to is one example. Paul says, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members to slay as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death." But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So please understand that we are children of God and he is our father. We are the bride of Christ and he is the groom. We are the sheep and Christ is our shepherd. And those are all different but real perspectives which shed light on the way that we relate to Christ. But among those, another one that is real and valid is the truth that we are slaves and he is our master, that we have been bought with a price by the precious blood of Christ and that we belong to him. Paul says, you are no longer your own. You don't belong to yourself. You have been bought with a price. So understand, we are more than slaves, but we are not less than that. Again, he has a rightful claim upon us, upon every single inch of our lives, both as our creator and then doubly so as our redeemer. And we do not get to barter about the terms and conditions upon which we Follow Christ. He sets the terms and conditions. He sets the rules. That's what it means for Christ to be Lord. You don't come to the table and form an agreement upon compromise. You submit to him as Lord. That's what it means to be a follower. And so 
Again, I repeat that there's not a single inch of your life that remains untouched by the Lordship of Christ. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It doesn't get any more all-encompassing than that. And as Colossians 3 goes on, Paul is going to spell out some of the finer details of what that looks like. But here in verses 1 to 4, we just have a couple commands to give us the general lay of the land, an overview of Christian lifestyle. What does it look what does the Christian life look like from 40,000 feet? And I think these two verses help us get oriented. Notice we have seek the things above, and we have set your minds on the things above. And the command to set your minds on is all one word in the Greek. So we have parallel phrases with the exception of these one words. And I think these two words, seek the things and set your minds on the things above, comprehend our emotions, our desires, the ambitions of our hearts, and then the thoughts of our minds. We begin living out the Christian life by asking the question, what are the things that matter to God? What are the things that hold weight in heaven? What are the things that have eternal significance? These are the things that I'm going to seek after. These are the things that I'm going to set my mind on. These are the things that I'm going to give myself to as a follower of Christ. Whatever matters to him matters to me. Whatever is precious to him is precious to me. And whatever is not precious to him isn't precious to me. And so, if God doesn't care about my 401k, neither do I. If God doesn't care about the square footage of my home, neither do I. If God doesn't care about my job title and my career advancement, neither do I. And I can let that go. If God doesn't care about how many cool vacations and experiences I've accumulated in my life and how much I can flex on social media, neither do I. None of these things will matter in a thousand years from now as we press farther in and farther up into the glories of heaven, you will not be bitter that you got passed over for that job promotion. You will not be bitter that the very real and heavy demands of raising your children and keeping home kept you from some things, maybe even good things in the world. But you might look back on the brief moment that we call life on earth and bemoan how much of your mind and heart were consumed with things that don't matter. You might grieve how little joy you had because of how much you valued and loved the things of the world. You might lament how much anxiety you had because of how little you set your minds on the promises of God and the faithfulness of God, and the goodness of God, and the mercy of God. And if you know, you're waiting for me at some point to give you the, the secrets of the Christian life, of, of how to live this, you know, your, this Christian life with your mind set on higher things and seeking the things that are above, you know, you're not going to find it in this sermon. Faithfully do the basic things that God has called you to do and that you already know you should be doing. Engage with the word of God every day. Give thanks to God for his goodness and mercy towards you 
every day. Be repenting of your sin every day. Make Lord's Day worship a functional, non-negotiable in your schedule. Prioritize other opportunities to meet with Christians as you're able. Read and listen to good books and sermons, podcasts, as you're able. Find hobbies that bring mental, emotional, uh, and spiritual clarity, as well as physical well-being. Avoid hobbies that induce mental and emotional and spiritual fog and dullness and physical unhealth. And I I hope that you hear some of the nuance in how I'm wording these. Engaging with the Bible, first-tier issue. Reading good books, second-tier issue, but still helpful and uh, can be very useful. Your choice of hobbies, I'd say, third-tier issue, often a matter of wisdom and prudence, but can either help you or hinder you in those other things that are more important. And I would say this kind of nuance in how we think about spirituality is the difference between the legalistic, pseudo-spiritual spirituality that Paul was addressing in chapter 2 with biblical spirituality of Scripture. For example, I'm not generally very enthusiastic about Christian men playing video games. However, has God forbidden all video games? No. He hasn't. And I don't want to bind the conscience where God has not bound someone's conscience. So for the the 22-year-old that's playing hours a day, I would probably give the counsel, just get rid of it. Do yourself a favor. Sell it. Trash it. It's not helping you become a more faithful follower of Christ. Not a law. Not saying it's sin. Just my counsel. For the 65-year-old grandpa who is looking for ways to invest in his grandkids, say, play video games. (laughs) Get out of your comfort zone. Learn to do this so that you can invest in, engage with your grandchildren, if that is a way for you to do it. Not because you care about the video game, but because you care about them. And so... On one hand, numbing your mind with endless entertainment, not helping you set your minds on things above. Stepping out of your comfort zone to cultivate relationship with people that God has placed in your life, in your your sphere of influence, well, that's a kingdom priority. That's That's a good use of time. And there's so many things like this. You know, spending hours in the gym so that you can parade around your physique, not a kingdom priority. Working out so that you can be healthy and have mental clarity and emotional stability. Good use of time. Working 60 hours a week because you have real financial needs and that are impressed upon you. Honorable. Working 60 hours a week because that is where you derive your sense of value and worth and identity and you like what work can offer you and the things that you can get from it. Not good. And so... Once you get outside of the clear moral issues, like, okay, adultery is always wrong. There's no world in which, no circumstances which justify that. Gossiping, we don't need to do that. There's no circumstance that justifies your spreading rumors and speaking, slandering other people. 
There are clear-cut categories. But beyond those, there's a whole world of things that can be sinful or they can be spiritual, depending on a host of variables. And now, if you hear that and immediately think, oh, well, well, that means I'm free to do whatever I want, as long as the Bible doesn't explicitly say it's sinful. Well, then you're showing that you really haven't understood the passage. The question that the Christian asks the one who has died, the one who has been raised with Christ in newness of life, should ask is, is this thing helping me to set my mind on the things above? Is this thing helping me seek Christ? Does this help me to appreciate what Jesus has done for me? Does it awaken me to spiritual realities or does it dull me to them? Does it point me in the direction of obedience or does it draw me away from it? So if social media is inclining your heart towards envy and jealousy and worldliness or lust, then get off social media. Is all social media sin? Not necessarily. But listen to how Paul exhorts the Philippians. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So um, there's a lot of application this sermon. <laughs> Can a Christian watch a rated R movie? Maybe. Well, did, did he just say I could watch a rated R movie? Well, hold on. Does that movie teach you and remind you about things that are true? Is the content of the movie honorable? Is it pure? Is it commendable? Would Jesus praise this movie as good? Maybe there are R-rated movies that fit that category. I don't know. Honestly, I can tell you just from my own personal experience and conviction that I'm hard-pressed to find PG-13 movies that don't violate those principles on a thousand counts. Whether it's sexual content, the glorification of bloodshed, the abuse of God's name, or the general propagation of a worldview that is false and anti-biblical. So it doesn't matter if the movie shows explicitly uh, explicit scenes, if it's still exalting romantic flings outside the context of marriage as a good and desirable thing. The film is portraying something that God says is evil as good. It is commending what God says is not commendable. It's praising that which is not praiseworthy. So filling up your minds with these things and saturating your hearts with them is not going to help you follow Christ. And my desire is not to impose my personal convictions on you in areas of Christian liberty, but it is to lay out the principles of Scripture and to exhort you to wrestle with them. Biblical spirituality is a lot harder than legalism. It's not just black and white, check your boxes. You have to actually engage with the Word of God, wrestle with it, bring it to the Lord and ask, how does this apply to my life? Lord, all that I am, all my moments, all my days, all my thoughts are yours. How do you want me to steward them? <clears throat> not because it's the rules of your religious community, but because you want Christ. And you're persuaded that whatever hinders you from having more of Christ is worth getting rid of. I hope you believe that this morning. And if you don't believe that, let me just tell you once more that it's true. 
that whatever hinders you from having more of Christ is worth getting rid of. And that's a pretty extreme statement. But it's certainly no more extreme than verses 3 and 4. Just read it. Paul says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. The Bible does not portray Christ as one piece of a good life, in addition to all these other pieces like family, work, and hobbies. According to Scripture, for the Christian, Christ is your life. Jesus is the whole pie. He is everything. And then all these other things like work and family and hobbies flow out of your relationship to him, your identity in him. That is what is fundamental and central and unchanging. And then all those other things take shape based upon your relationship to him as Lord. You relate to your parents and your teachers, your employer, your children, your spouse, school, work, church, hobbies, everything else in a certain way because Christ is your life. And everything else is downstream from your relationship to him, your identity in him. And one of the effects of that is that you're liberated from making sure that all the other circumstances of your life are just the way you wanted. Because your life isn't found in those circumstances. Your life is found in him. And Paul says, when he appears, you are going to appear with him. Not in all the brokenness and the messiness and the complication of this life, but you're going to appear with him in glory. Set your mind on that. Rejoice in in that. Let the hope of future glory inform and be the lens through which you think about and experience the circumstances of this life. Start living like who you really are in Christ, like who God created you to be, like who Christ redeemed you to be, like who the Spirit is working inside of you to transform you to be. Because your identity in Christ, that which is fundamental, is one who's not only raised in newness of life, but you're holy, you're beloved, you're set apart for Christ, you're destined for glory. This is who you are. And this is who you will be forever. So live like it today. Let's conclude with a passage from 1 Peter 1, 13 to 15 that I think brings these truths together well and we'll pray that the Spirit applies them to our hearts, that we're transformed by it. Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that who we are is not 
fundamentally and is not ultimately determined by our performance. It's not determined by what we do or how well we measure up even to your law. Who we are is determined by our identity in Christ, that in him we have new life. In him we've been given a new identity. We have a new status and a new relationship to you. And Lord, I pray that we would live like that, that we would embrace our identity in Christ and live out of that, that we would set our minds on the things that are above, that we would seek those things that are above with all of our hearts, uh, that you would give us the strength to say no to the, the silly uh, distractions of this world and to look to you and to follow you. And then, Lord, all the other things that we do, that, that they're not wrong or sinful, uh, let them be done unto you, whether eating or drinking, all that we do may be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.